This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and history, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Louis A. DeCaro, Jr. He's one of the most renowned biographers on the 19th century American abolitionist John Brown. He has written such books as Fire from the Midst of You, A Religious Life of John Brown, Freedom's Dawn, The Last Days of John Brown in Virginia, as well as the monograph John Brown, The Cost of Freedom. In addition, he is also the assistant professor of the Church History at Alliance Theological Seminary, which is part of Nyack College. So I'm very glad to welcome Professor DeCaro to the show. Very glad to be with you. Thank you. And again, thank you for your flexibility with the schedule. Appreciate it. So when did you take an interest in John Brown? For my listeners who don't know, John Brown was the 19th century abolitionist who, with his sons, on one night killed five pro-slavery settlers, and then he was famous for launching the Harpers Ferry Raid. He was a strong Christian who believed that slavery was so wrong that it deserved to be eradicated by violence, and that it wouldn't be eradicated without the cost of shedding blood. Yes. Uh, and that, that was a succinct description. I would have uh, tweaked it a little bit here and there, but I became interested in, in John Brown first, interestingly, because my my work before Brown was on Malcolm X. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the theme uh, I, I I like religious biography, and so I wrote a religious biography of uh, Malcolm X, and worked on Malcolm for a while. And I think studying Malcolm X and listening to Malcolm X's assessment of uh, the history of this country. Uh, and then uh, I wouldn't say necessarily high opinion of John Brown, but certainly his his open and uh, favorable disposition toward John Brown, along with his view of the history of the United States and how it's been revised <clears throat> by the majority population, caused me to think about Brown differently. Because, like most people in this country, uh, I was propagandized against John Brown, or at least. Uh, he wasn't really on the radar of my thinking about what uh, so-called American history is about. So later on, uh, after my work on on Malcolm, uh, I I thought that I had sort of run its course. I I began to read on Brown, and uh, at some point um, the bug bit, and I began to realize that this was a man who I think in many respects needed uh, scholarly reassessment and scholarly alliances support much more than Malcolm X did. Malcolm X has has a lot of people who appreciate him, a lot of scholarship, and there may be controversy attached to his name. But I think in many respects, there's much more opportunity to understand Malcolm and to appreciate him. Whereas John Brown, I thought, was kind of like the guy in U.S. history who had the kick me sign stuck on his back. Um, And so I began to read about him and do research. And uh, at the time, my editor at NYU Press said, well, why don't you do a book on Brown? And I said, I'd like to. And I started with a religious life because, again, that tends to be my interest. I'm, I'm very interested in the intersection of 
uh, that kind of unique intersection of, of people who have more of a traditional religious view with a radical politic. That was Malcolm X, and uh, John Brown has that in common with him, if nothing else. So I began to do research on John Brown, and um, for me, the more I studied him, um, the more I became convinced that we had been handed um, a lot of distorted, biased interpretation of the man's life, um, selective reading of his life, and that the voices who had shaped our cultural um, perspective on Brown were largely pro, pro-South, who had sentimentalized and, and glorified the, the history of the South. And, and from there, it was just I got deeper and deeper. And my own philosophy on, on, on being a biographer was, you know, there's a lot of people who write books on John Brown. Some of them are really good. Probably the most recent really good book on John Brown is David Reynolds. I'd say it's one of the best books we've had. And that, that, that speaks highly of Reynolds as a scholar. But a lot of people come and write, that, write their book on John Brown, and they keep moving on. And a lot of them do damage, or a lot of them, you know, really just come with a preconceived notion and then gather the facts and write the biography and keep moving. And I decided that I was going to stay and uh, dig deep, deeply. And so I've been doing that now for the better part of 20 years. Um, And uh, so I continue to work on Brown. I've written four books on Brown. You mentioned most of them, but I hope to continue to do more. I'm working on his letters. I'm doing a lot of things. So... Uh, I'm inter- I'm the kind of guy who's interested in you know the toothbrush and you know and the razor he used um, trivialities as well as as uh, the details of his life his business life um, everything about him so I'm interested in him in that regard. Yeah, and some of the common images we have of John Brown was that he was a religious spirited terrorist in his later days and an insane fanatical mentally insane psychotic man in his most extreme ways, killing innocent people, destabilizing society, and of course, symptomatic of extremists like David Koresh, Timothy McVeigh, and other American extremists. And basically, to put it shortly, he's viewed as a homegrown terrorist. Yes. In fact, that's a phrase that was used by uh, someone about 20 years ago. Um, can't remember the gentleman's name who made a, a PBS video, but you're absolutely right. That's very well put description of how, and, and I say this with all due respect, how most white people think of him, um, and because this is how they've been schooled. And this has happened in different phases. I mean, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, John Brown was considered more a madman and a troublemaker. You know, he was blamed for um, the Civil War, and he was considered insane. And uh, the prominent Civil War historians at that time, Alan Nevins and others, um, pigeonholed him in this way without substantive resources. Uh, um, and so, you know, one, one of the main reasons that they used for saying Brown was insane was because during his trial in Virginia, um, his friends got together and tried to uh, help him uh, escape the death penalty by submitting. Uh, affidavits that he was he was a monomaniac. Most of them didn't say he was insane. They said he was an extremist, a fanatic. Of course, that didn't work, but what historians subsequently picked up on uh, was that this insanity issue, he had some mental illness in his family, but many of us do, 
and that doesn't necessarily prove that we're all mentally ill. And also in the 19th century, the idea of mental illness was not clearly understood as it is understood today. So that was really a lot of nonsense. That stuck. But as you mentioned, when we get into the late 20th century and the early 21st century and 9-11, some people have now revised that to whether or not he was insane, he was a terrorist. And, of course, the idea, first of all, there being uh, an American, original American terrorist is absolutely nonsense. Ask the Native Americans who the terrorists were. Um, you know, ask the Mexicans who the terrorists were. Ask the Africans who were brought here in slavery and used and kept in bondage uh, by the use of the constant threat of violence and terrorism. Ask them who the original terrorists are. I think you'll get a very different answer. So that's nonsense. It's historical nonsense. Second of all, John Brown was not a terrorist. Um, terrorism, and I think uh, Paul Finkelman from the University uh, from the uh, the Albany School of Law has has a nice article in which he did this work. Uh, if you could look, if, you, if any of those listening want to look it up, and he talks about what terrorism is. John Brown was not a terrorist. He never committed an act of terrorism. The one incident that is always the first to be mentioned, and always the point that is raised, is the Potawatomi incident of uh, May of 1856. And actually. I would contend, and I won't keep going, I want you to be able to ask, ask anything else you want to ask, but I would say this. I would say, if anything, it was a counter-terroristic strike. Uh, it was in the midst of a breakdown of law and order. It was in a situation of complete civil mayhem where the pro-slavery um, terrorists were flowing in over the borders into the Kansas Territory, where the United States government was turning a blind eye and where free state people, and particularly anti-slavery abolitionists, radical egalitarians like the Browns, were being targeted, and were actually going to be driven off their land by death or violence. And so in the midst of a lack of constabulary support, a lack of federal support, John Brown and a group of his men, not by using some strange spell or power over these people, but out of the practicalities of war, identified seven men. They only got five of them, but they identified seven men who were responsible, local neighbors who were collaborating with invading terrorists, and they took them out. They destroyed the vector, and although it didn't permanently stop the intrusion of, of, of a pro-slavery invasion into the territory, it did derail it for a good time, and it saved the lives of his family. I don't consider that an act of terrorism. I consider that an act of counterterrorism, and I consider it an act of nobility. So, but again, who's telling the story always matters. Yes, and David Reynolds, who otherwise admires Brown and considers him one of the good guys, does consider it murder. Of course, I agree with your perspective, DeCaro, about the Potowatomi incident. And I want to mention that at least, and at least in can I just interject? I think I think personally interacting with David since his book came out in two thousand five, I would tend to think that that, and, and, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I would tend to think that David probably would revise those his initial assessment. Um, I really do. From I mean, I know him. He's 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 a great scholar, and and I would I would call him a, a friend, if not a, certainly a good associate. I don't think that he would actually hold to the terrorist paradigm. I think at the time he wrote that, 
he was maybe being up, trying to be as objective or as you know kind of come as close as he can to the center. But I, I, I don't think that he actually believes he was a terrorist. That's just my opinion today. Okay. And one of the things I noted in the Potoatomi incident when I was studying this is that John Brown and his men at least spared one of them and because the mother pleaded for that one's life. And do you think that yeah. person who was spared had some involvement? I'm just curious. Yes, he was a, he was a 16-year-old boy. But see, this was a man named Doyle. He... He came from Tennessee. He was a poor pro-slavery man. His family had been uh, involved in uh, in Tennessee. They were uh, they were those uh, despicable characters who were called slave patrollers. They chased down and attacked and 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 returned uh, you know innocent people to slavery. That was their job. They had the dogs to to prove it. And the Doyles, when they came to Kansas, came and became involved in local pro-slavery conspiracy. Now remember, Kansas territory was opened up uh, because by uh, Stephen Douglas's work on the, in the Compromise, uh, this idea that Kansas would, would come into the Union as either a free state or a pro-slavery state, depending on popular sovereignty. Um, so it would be the settlers who would decide. And of course, Kansas filled up largely with with anti-slavery, or at least free state people. And this this disturbed the South, because the South wanted Nebraska to go to the free state people, and they wanted Kansas as a slave state. But because of popular sovereignty, Kansas also was clearly going to the free state side. And so pro-slavery settlers there began to collaborate with and conspire with uh, pro-slavery forces across the border in Missouri and from the South. And the Doyles became a guide. They were acting in identifying free state people, and particularly abolitionists, because we have to remember and then, that not everybody who was free state was an abolitionist. It's one thing to say you don't like slavery. It's another thing to say black people are equal, are human beings, and de- deserve to be immediately emancipated. Abraham Lincoln at this time, was only uh, a free state person. He was not an abolitionist. In fact, he never was. John Brown was always an abolitionist. And so the fact that the Browns were very vocal, John Brown and his sons were very vocal anti-slavery people and very vocal abolitionist people who believed in black equality, they were identified. They offended the Doyles. They offended others, Alan Wilkerson, the Sherman brothers, all these so-called innocent victims who were, in fact, conspiring to bring in hordes of terrorists into from Missouri to attack them, kill them, or at least drive them from their homes with, with, with fire and, and gunpowder. So, um, again, these Doyles were not innocent people, and the father and two sons were involved, and this other son who was involved was a teenager. He was involved, too. But but again, when it came right down to it, the mother's pleadings, and by the way, that same mother, when they took her husband and sons away, she told them, I told you you were going to get in trouble with this kind of devilment you're involved in. I told you. So um, by her own lips, she admitted that her husband was up to no good. Uh, so again, a terrorist doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, do that. A terrorist just blows up or kills everybody to make a point. John Brown wasn't really making a point. He was, he was secondarily making a point 
but he was primarily there to protect his family. We have to remember John Brown didn't even go to Kansas politically uh, as a gesture politically. He had his plans on the East Coast. He wanted to work in the East against slavery. He went to Kansas because his sons wrote to him and told him, we're in trouble. We don't have weapons, and these people are coming in, and they're threatening our lives. So John Brown got weapons, and he went to Kansas. And even when he went to Kansas in the fall of 1855, he did nothing but help his family and take care of the family. He even traded with pro-slavery people in Missouri. And the only time he took up weapons in the spring of 1856 was because pro-slavery terrorism was mounting and invading the territory. I do not consider that, and I would argue with anybody that that can be considered terrorism, let alone the so-called original American terrorists. That's nonsense. Yes, and one of the things I noted when I'm reading David Reynolds' biography was that he was responding to a culture that kind of glorified the Southern type of violence, including killing people who were defenseless as a kind of manliness. And of course, the Southern honor culture was there, and maybe it was much darker than we kind of expect it to be. Yeah, well, the Southern culture was a culture of sheer violence. Um, and and it was a, it was a culture that had blended violence with religion, and had found a way to sanctify um, to sanctify that violence, uh, you know, with religion. After all, you have traditional churches and, and traditional Christian churches, whether they be Calvinistic or, or, or Methodist, Arminian. Uh, John Brown was a Calvinist, and he had his counterparts in the South who were who were as Calvinistic as he was, except for they were rapidly pro-slavery, and thought nothing about the violence that was used not only against the enslaved people, but to sustain slavery. And Brown was a man who believed in, um, you know, believed in the necessity of using force because he knew that moral persuasion or the nonviolent ethic that was later advocated, you know, by Dr. King was being advocated by William Lloyd Garrison, more called moral suasion. Uh, Brown knew that these people were not going to let go of their, of their enslaved people. That this was their this was their money, this was their property, this was their pride, and that the violence was so deeply rooted in that culture that he knew that you would have to use some kind of force. And yet he did not advocate insurrectionary violence on a widespread. That is, he didn't simply say, "Let's just kill all the slaveholders." That's another a misrepresentation of Brown. He just believed that in order to take some away, you might have to fight, and that's exactly what he did when he was in the Kansas Territory. He also uh, late in 1858, uh, in the last episode of his return to Kansas, he went into Missouri and he took 11 people out of bondage at gunpoint. And he marched them all the way over and got them all the way over to Chicago and on a train to Detroit and across across the river into freedom, into the free country of Canada. Um, it's because he, he did not believe that Nonviolence was a viable political strategy, that it wouldn't make any difference. All it did was talk, talk, talk. He once told James Redpath, who turned out to be his first biographer, he once told him while they were walking down the street in Boston, he said, the abolitionist orators are good people, but sometimes I wish their tongues would be cut out. And Redpath was shocked by that statement. And then and he said, why would you say that? And he said, because they're good people. Maybe if they didn't, they couldn't speak, they would act. So this was a man who was committed to action, and he understood that the action needed had to involve 
the use of force. Now, you know, you may use the term violence. It certainly was violence, but it was not violence in the sense of him attacking people in their homes, attacking slaveholders and their children, and murdering them in their beds. That Potawatomi incident is a is an exception to to Brown's actions. It's not normative. It had to do with the particular politics and circumstances of that particular place. I agree. That makes much sense. And when you mentioned Brown's general tactics, I want to come to Brown as a student of military history because he studied a lot of guerrilla warfare. And at one point, he was studying very intensely the Haitian Revolution, which was very popular. And I bring that up because Pat Robertson once made a spurious claim that Haiti's pact with the devil was the reason they had that big earthquake a few years ago. And of course, I remember you posted a beautiful blog post which critiqued that spurious idea. And it's a very devilish idea, I think, to blame Haiti's earthquake for some spurious pact that may or may not have happened. But John Brown definitely took inspiration from that revolt and from what I read in David Reynolds' case, it was much less extreme, or at least much less voracious than has been depicted in some popular depictions. Am I right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It, I mean, yes. Brown, first of all, Brown studied, as you said, military history. He studied ancient military history. And he was quite taken by um, black figures and any, any figures uh, who had stood up against oppression. And uh, he was impressed by uh, by Toussaint Louverture in Haiti, and um, he was impressed by any any story where where um, you know uh, where the oppressed rose up because he believed in in human equality and he believed that it was a human's right uh, to struggle. So uh, so yeah, again, sometimes you know, exaggerations or, or caricatures are, are are made of Brown in this regard, but you know. When um, when Nat Turner's revolt took place in 1831, it was not unusual for abolitionists to um, to certainly at least have uh, hot and cold feelings about it. Many abolitionists who were pacifists nevertheless recognized that Nat Turner, what Nat Turner did, was the logical consequence of what slavery does, and uh, did not condemn him wholesale. Even William Lloyd Garrison. As much as he was a pacifist, when Brown struck at Harper's Ferry, even he did not condemn uh, Brown fully. Um, so, you know, we also have to keep in mind that there were a lot of people who were sort of in between and who, um, you know, they don't take an action. But when you get a guy like Brown and he takes an action, then afterward they sort of feel free to express themselves. And so Brown was just on the cutting edge. He recognized that the same thing that white people did because they wanted independence in the 17th, you know, in the 18th century, that black people were entitled to do the same thing. He, if not he, he was repeating it when it was said, that slavery is a, is, is a state of war from one people upon another people. So that was, excuse me, that was his position. Yeah, I think that's an excellent overview of John Brown. And I want to bring up when you mentioned Haiti and Nat Turner and what William Lloyd Garrison thought about it. I also want to bring up the transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau, which David Reynolds covers. In effect, besides Brown, the transcendentalists are the main heroes of Reynolds' portrait because they're the ones who are even more radical than most abolitionists around the time of John Brown's raids. Because initially, many transcendentalists were anti-political and they didn't want to get involved. They wanted to be sort of 
removed in a sense, but then later on they got much more involved and Thoreau became much more radicalized. He was comparing Thoreau to Jesus at one point. Yes, uh, yes, he was. Uh, you mean compare Brown to Jesus? Absolutely. And uh, of course, you know, one of one of Brown's so-called secret six was Theodore Parker, and uh, Brown uh, liked to hear Parker speak. He didn't agree with his theology. And Brown was. Uh, by all, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, he was clearly a uh, Reformed Presbyterian or Congregationalist uh, in the Reformed tradition. He might even be called today, at least on paper, an evangelical, no, not politically, but his his theology. And yet he was very secure dealing with people of different religions, and he particularly found support, as you mentioned, um, you know, with the uh, with the transcendentalists and Theodore Parker was very instrumental in helping um, Brown. I think, in fact, I think Parker was uh, one of the one of the one or two people, I should say, who helped him draft his um, uh, his his uh, statement. It's not the provisional; it was the provisional constitution, and and uh, so the kind of country, the kind of society that Brown wanted to see come about the the equal the egalitarian society uh the just society was something that uh you know he he drew upon the reflections of somebody like theodore parker although of course he had his own uh core biblical ideas um this is it's very important and as you mentioned they appreciated him and uh the fact that he could be uh, equated you know compared to christ on the cross was uh was heavy language in 19th century United States. You know, today it might it might seem more like um, rhetoric, but I think coming at that time, it was very weighty. And in that day, it was like America was like plagued with corruption, especially since it was a new nation forming. And then John Brown, understandably, understandably with all his action, was like a Christ figure to these people, it was like Jesus come to a world of corruption and death. And then, of course, the majority of Europeans, from what I hear, thought that John Brown's actions were rash, but that they were otherwise noble, and that they exposed the rottenness within Southern pro-slavery rhetoric. Yes, yes. I mean, certainly, um, you know, Harriet Tubman um, knew Brown, worked with him, and we'll, we can't so much get into the details of what, why she wasn't at Harper's Ferry, but... Even after, there's a, a poignant episode where she saw um, Brackett's bust of John Brown, which was made in part by modeling Brown in person while he was in jail. When she saw it, she says, this is Christ. Um, you know, this is, and, I, and I don't uh, think that Harriet Tubman meant that this was the per, personification of Jesus, uh, but I think what she meant was is that he represented a salvific figure, that he was a redemptive figure, and that the enslaved population recognized the hand of God in his life. Um, so yes, absolutely true. And yeah, the Europeans, you know, uh, really celebrated him more, particularly the you know the Red Republicans and those who who, who wanted equality. Interestingly, too, what's often is not said is that John Brown has had had both an immediate and long-term effect, I think, even, for instance, in the Caribbean and even in Africa and, uh, and, and other places where he was admired uh, even later on as, as by anti-colonialists. But, uh, for instance, uh, there was a Puerto Rican liberator um, uh, named uh, Betances, 
who um, wrote a beautiful verse uh, celebrating John Brown's death at the hands of slaveholders as part of their own rebellion against uh, you know, the Spanish hegemony and, and the colonization of uh, Puerto Rico. So John Brown kind of rang the bells of, of uh, liberty in the 19th century, and that has unfortunately been grossly overlooked and skewed by all this silly rhetoric coming from academics, professional academics who don't really know anything about John Brown, but who simply have chosen instead to position him as, you know, the great terrorist figure of, of this country. It's such, it's such nonsense. And, and I would add, just as a footnote, this is the same culture that has allowed um, a pro-slavery rebellion to be sentimentalized, celebrated. For many years, we let the flag of the rebels who almost destroyed the union of this country uh, be flown in the South. We allow their we allow these figures who are radical rebels and, and radical racists to be commemorated with statues and the names of towns and parks across the country, and we celebrate in our legends somebody as as low and vile as Jesse James. Uh, you know, Jesse James is loved as a figure in this country. Jesse James was the son of slaveholders. He started his career in violence and crime um, as a pro-slavery thug. And then when the Civil War ended, he just continued to attack what he considered to be, you know, institutions that reflected the Union, the federal government. Um, and then he was a murderer and a killer. Now, if there was ever a terrorist, it was Jesse James. And yet Jesse James is viewed as a Robin Hood by white people in this country. And John Brown is the terrorist. Yeah. I find that just, yeah. you know, just, just absurd. It's an absurdity. I see. And before we before we go on to talk about John Brown's family, both as son and as father, and before we go on to the climactic Harper's Ferry issue, I want to mention on the side note that I remember this film called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which was yeah. released a while ago in 2007. I haven't seen that film, but I hear it's very acclaimed and it's a very fascinating portrait of a character who wants to be a kind of Jesse James, but who never is quite up to it. Have you seen yeah, that film? Uh, I've seen I've seen that a couple of times. It's really a, be a beautifully done film. I mean, I have no, from the standpoint of the story, the cinematic quality and the acting, I think it was superb. But the fact, again, that Jesse James is viewed with... Um, uh, sympathy and you know Robert Robert uh, Ford who, who who murdered him um, is also becomes a subject story. I mean that has historical essence. I understand that, but there have been there has been so much done. I mean there were when I was a kid in the United States there was a TV show by Jesse James. Uh, he's he's a legend. People love him, um, or they think that he was a good man. Well, to me he was a vile miscreant and. Whatever he got, he deserved. He should have gotten it sooner. Um, and the fact that he was a racist and a pro-slavery figure uh, doesn't matter to a lot of people. All they care about is uh, their sentimentality and what they call their regional sectional pride. Um, John Brown was a man who believed in freedom. This is what he lived for. His whole family life, his whole uh, personal private uh, ethic uh, was always about helping the poor, helping the downcast. Um, and, 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 and ultimately, slavery was the, the, the most unacceptable presence 
in this country that he loved. And this is what he lived for, and this is what he died for. He died, he died happily because he believed that even his death could, could speak uh, to, to slavery in a, in a positive way, uh, you know, and, and this is what he did. I just, you know, it, it amazes me at how miseducated and how propagandized people are. And a lot of it is because of movies. I think, and, then I'll, and I'll be quiet, but I think one of the most damaging things that has been done against John Brown was the 1940 film, Santa Fe Trail, that had a, a cast of, uh, of then greatest stars in Hollywood. And Raymond Massey portrayed John Brown. And uh, they made John Brown um, look like a madman. And they made him look like a sheer murderer. And uh, they exaggerated and distorted the story. And then at the end, they have him standing on the gallows giving a speech. Well, they didn't let John Brown speak on the gallows. They would never have permitted that. It was a political it was a political murder because no one was allowed to attend except for military and political figures, and uh, he wasn't allowed to speak, and neither were the were the uh, raiders who were hanged subsequently. And when he was and when he was hanged, um, the only testimony of what he said comes from people who were literally close to him at the time. So um, you know that film uh, shaped the 20th century popular. Was along with the uh, the so-called great historians of the Civil War era who knew, knew virtually nothing about Brown. That is what gave us, uh, I think, to this day, a problem. And whenever you talk to people, and again, it has to be racialized because, unfortunately, the way black people understand history is different from the way white people do. And I tend to trust the experience of the oppressed more than I do the top-down readings of history. And when when white people, generally speaking, I'm not talking about all whites, but but white people, generally speaking, when they talk about John Brown, they are talking from a biased, um, skewed, and often propagandized position in history. They simply don't know what they're talking about. And I, I used to be quite angry. And I used to use, mention my blog. I used to talk, use my blog to counter people. And I just found that it was such a regular problem with some one or another blogger, journalist somebody saying something about John Brown. It kept me busy responding because that's how deeply entrenched these ideas are. And before we go to John Brown's family life, I admire how you brought up John Brown's dedication to freedom and the great black biographer W.E.B. Du Bois. He had this to say about Brown, that the central lesson of his life was that the price of liberty is less than the cost of repression. And I agree with that sentiment so much. As after all, my title is Letter of Liberty, and I'm very dedicated to it. And this that's, dedication. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I appreciate the scope of your preparation. Um, this is, uh, generally doesn't happen in conversations like this. Thank you. Okay, so I was going to mention that John Brown's family also dedicated their lives to this, co- to this cause of freedom. And it's. Yeah. And his father was a strong abolitionist, and he was friends with black people and with Native Americans. And even John Brown, while he was not a perfect kid, he definitely had the sense of fighting for those who were not able to fight for themselves as a kid. And that one of his family members, a relative, said that the slavery was basically a way for John Brown to be himself at the maximum. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say so, that, uh, you know, his... his uh um, from his youth, 
um, he manifested a hatred of, of uh, bullying and oppression. And uh, I think the issue of slavery, it was always bothersome to him. Um, I think you may have seen in the Cost of Freedom how, you know, there's actually evidence that when he was a schoolboy, he would be fighting to defend uh, the smaller, weaker kids. Um, when he went to Pennsylvania in the 1820s as a young um, entrepreneur, frontiersman, he immediately got caught up in a conflict between a big land company and some uh, poor settlers. He took the side of the poor settlers. In the 1840s, when he entered into uh, the wool business with great success, and expertise, he also saw that the manufacturers were taking advantage of the wool growers. He again got caught up in that. So there's a pattern in John Brown's life that he was always for the underdog. And uh, he even says that in his jail letters. He says that he always, you know, took up the side of what he called the people on the underhill side, the people who were uh, on, the, on the lower end of anything. So for him to finally approach or to see the condition of Native Americans, and by the way, you know, for instance, something that John Brown did for Native Americans as a standard thing in Kansas, and I think he did it in uh, in the East, was he would he studied surveying and he learned how to survey, and he would survey uh, Native lands to make sure that they were not robbed, um, you know, that that uh, white people would not squat on on Native lands. He did that in Kansas. And, and, and to no surprise, what he found in Kansas was it was the Southerners who were squatting on um, Native lands. So, again, just to show you that this is the kind of man he was, he had a general view of, about, about the poor. He told his children, he said, don't ever think anything you give to the poor is waste. Anything you give to the poor, no matter what the situation is, is always better. So this was a man who believed in the concerns of uh, the downcast. And I think it's important that people understand that's his profile, and it was his religion. He believed that it's one thing to say you're a Christian. It's another thing to exemplify uh, these principles of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And either you believe that, and you're a Christian, or you're a hypocrite. And you're useless. And so this was his position. He was a very practical, he wasn't a theologian, he wasn't a pastor, but he was a man who believed that if you are a Christian, then you must, you know, there's more to Christianity than the ethic, the practice, but if you don't have the practice and you don't demonstrate the ethic, then what can be said about your Christianity? And that was John Brown. Yes, it's been said. People who have met him said they have never been. Frederick Douglass said, I have never been. I had never been in the presence of a more powerful religious influence than John Brown. Not political influence. And and Douglas did say that Brown of, of, uh, it did challenge his political view, but it was this kind of total inseparability of religion from action that he found so powerful in Brown's in, in Brown's uh, life. That's great. And I want to move on now to the Harper's Ferry Raid, because many people viewed that as a failed raid, and it technically did fail, but many people perceived that it was like a poorly organized thing and shows how Brown was stupid and how he was insane. But then you and many other good historians argued that Brown's plan was actually credible 
And if the execution was flawed, it certainly could have been done right, and it definitely had everything going for it in some crucial ways. Yes. Um, I think it's important to say, first of all, that we have to make a distinction between John Brown's plan, that is to, to say the plan he had, and this was a plan that he had been nurturing, I believe, from as far back as, uh, certainly I can prove it, from 1840. But it was a plan that he had been nurturing and revising in his mind. Uh, one thing about Brown, for, for better and for worse, uh, and, and sometimes for worse, he was extremely ponderous. And I think, in fact, this is what hurt him in Harper's Ferry. But the plan was a is, was to destabilize slavery. It wasn't to kill slaveholders. It wasn't insurrection. It was to spread. It was to move through the mountains, make incursions onto plantations, and to remove those who would go with him, to introduce absolute insecurity into the system of slavery in the South, and to believe that this will spread from Virginia to North Carolina to South Carolina, down, you know, down through the South, and as James Redpath put it, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. His plan was to destabilize slavery. He didn't think that he could set every enslaved person free. He didn't think he was Spartacus, where he was going to launch an insurrection and armies of slave, slaves fighting slave masters. And the, he wanted to completely disrupt. It was the sabotage of slavery he wanted to do. He believed that if he could sabotage slavery, slavery's operations would break down. If you, if you began to see slaves disappearing from Virginia, the slaveholders will become insecure and they will sell their slaves deeper into the South. And yet the movement continues deeper into the South. And so this process continues. There, there are a lot of people at that time who under, they understood that. Frederick Douglass actually agreed with that strategy. People say Frederick Douglass said Brown's plan was folly. No, Douglass didn't say that. What Douglass disagreed with was how Brown added the attack upon the armory, the federal armory in Harper's Ferry. Douglass agreed with the plan. There were even people, um, there were local people in Virginia, one particular congressman named Botler, B-O-T-E-L-E-R, who later said, if Brown's plan was good, and if he had gotten into the mountains with, with the enslaved people he brought with him, they never could have gotten him out. Because Brown understood that the military, first of all, the military of the United States was not the military of the Civil War. The Army in 1859 was a small army, and any small army trying to pursue Brown into the Adirondacks, into the Allegheny Mountain system, would have been thwarted and frustrated because Brown did not intend to have military confrontation. Uh, he intended to form small cadres, liberate people, and retreat to the mountains. And that would be the M.O. for the, for the operation. So that's the plan he had. Can it, can it be said to have been a bad plan? I would argue not at all. Can it be, can, but can we know it was going to work? We don't know. But lesser plans have worked. And again... You pointed out John Brown studied military history. He was particularly interested in groups like the outliers in Jamaica, groups that had been able to uh, evade British colonialism by working in the mountain systems. So that was the plan. Now, what was the other problem? The problem was 
Why did he go to Harpers Ferry? Why did he want to seize the federal armory? Now, keep in mind, in 1859, there were many arsenals, and I find there's a lot of sloppiness because people don't, don't study in depth. There were many arsenals in the country, but there were only two federal armories. An armory is not just a place where weapons are kept, as you know, but a place where weapons are manufactured. And there were only two. One was in Springfield, Massachusetts. The other was in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Then it was Virginia. Today it's West Virginia. Um, John Brown lived in Springfield, and he studied the armory system in the 1840s. And then he was well acquainted with the Harpers Ferry Armory. He visited there before the attack. He was there incognito. In fact, I have one account of the superintendent who said he was annoyed with, with this man who kept coming in and asking all kinds of questions. So now the question is, why did Brown, number one, why did he attack the armory? My belief is this. Brown wanted to do it as a political statement. The, the reason for that is that while he was in Kansas, a group of pro-slavery militants raided a federal arsenal in Missouri and took the weapons and brought those weapons to Kansas to use against free state people. John Brown says that he began think said he, he began to think about Harper's Ferry as a target in 1856. That corresponds to when these pro-slavery thugs invaded an arsenal, took the weapons. And the upshot was this. The federal government never prosecuted them. They brought the weapons. They broke in, took the weapons. Some of the weapons were returned, but the, the White House never prosecuted or arrested these men for breaking into a federal arsenal. I believe... Brown, on his way south, wanted to initiate his movement into the south by making a counterstatement. And the interesting thing is, one of the things Anand, that you always hear, and I have challenged this, and I defy anyone to prove it, they say John Brown wanted the weapons in the federal armory. John Brown did not bring the wagons. He did not remove those weapons from the, uh, the arsenal. He didn't take any of the weapons out. As a matter of fact, he himself denied this. He said that he brought superior weapons. He had repeating rifles that he had gotten through his own connections. He didn't need those breech-loading, old-fashioned guns that were still being manufactured at Harper's Ferry. He didn't take them out. He didn't have the means to remove them. Why do they keep saying he took the, he, he invaded the armory to take the weapons to arm the enslaved people? Why do they say that? Because that's what the pro-slavery people said. So this gets into the very political story of how propaganda in history is used. And what we see in 1859 in Virginia is that the pro-slavery, that the actually slaveocracy in Virginia controlled tightly who would interpret what had happened in Virginia? No, pro, no anti-slavery or free state journalists were allowed in Virginia. We, only, we have one. He snuck in. And I talk about him. His name was Ned House. And he, he snuck in from the New York Daily Tribune. 
and he was incognito, which is why we know some of the things we know. If you read the New York Times, excuse me, the New York Daily Tribune very carefully, you will get truth. But if you read the the the, uh, the Herald, which was a pro-slavery New York paper, or you read the Virginia papers, all the journalism was crafted to protect the slaveholding interest. So they denied the effect that John Brown had upon the local enslaved community. They say John Brown was there to be to create insurrection. They say John Brown wanted to seize the weapon. They say a lot of things, none of which are true. And and so why did he t- attack Harper's Ferry? He wanted to make a political statement, and then he wanted to use that place to gather the initial force that he was going to take into the mountain. Was it a thousand? Was it ten thousand? Like people say, no, it wasn't. And I, and I think we can even prove it. When John Brown was preparing to leave, unfortunately, he prepared way too long. He got stuck. That's, his, that's where his error was. It was his own fault. But when he was preparing, he ordered food for 300 men from the local uh, diner. 300 men. That's about how many people he intended to take with him into the mountains. Not 1,000, not 10,000. Uh, and he certainly did not take any of those weapons out of the armory. Why didn't he take them out? If they say he if they say he wanted those weapons, where is the proof? There is no proof because he didn't want the weapons. And he told the he told two different reporters. He said, "I had better weapons." Why? Because a repeating rifle could shoot three times as many uh, men, any enemies, as could one of those breech-loading rifles. So he had superior weapons. All he wanted was the enslaved people, and if I may continue just another moment to say one of the peculiarities about John Brown was is that he was such a stickler for doing things the right way. And for John Brown, he wanted to do things by way of actual agreement and exchange. So one of the reasons he delayed in Harper's Ferry, as ludicrous as it sounds is, is that he wanted to parley with slaveholders and sign documents exchanging prisoners for their enslaved people. This was bad, you know. Now we say Brown had good strategy, was very poor tactician, very poor. He failed miserably, and he should have gotten himself up and got across the bridge into the mountains while he had the time. The man lingered. He invaded Harper's Ferry at about 11 o'clock at night, on a Sunday night, took the town easily because there was no military presence at Harper's Ferry. He knew this. He was very smart uh, in knowing that he could take the armory because there was no military presence. There were a couple of civilian guards. He took Harper's Ferry. He took captives. He had possession. He guarded the arsenal so that the Southerners couldn't get into the arsenal to use the weapons. Meanwhile, he proceeded to gather enslaved people from the vicinity. All that was perfectly good. The problem was, 5 o'clock in the morning came, he wasn't gone. 6 o'clock in the morning came, he wasn't gone. 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And by the time, you know, it was too late because he had also tactically erred by allowing a train to go through Harper's Ferry from the, from the station and the, um, the people on the train alerted the authorities. He made big mistakes at Harper's Ferry. And 
He, had, he acknowledges he made the mistakes, fatal errors. If he had not alerted, got the train to go through, if he had hurried, he would have gotten into the mountains. I'm very sure of that. He could have easily have gotten into the mountains. What would have happened from there? Well, we don't know. But I will say this. There would have been a whole different history about John Brown and uh, this uh, movement in the mountains had he escaped. Yes, and the first person that he killed and that his men killed was a black person on the train. And some people have thought, oh, this proves that John Brown's raid was contradictory and that it was almost hypocritical. Yet you argued that this black person was kind of the token for the South pro-slavery people and that this black person wasn't so innocent and that he was uncooperative. What do you say now? Yes, that was Hayward Shepard. You're absolutely right. Um, but keep in mind that in Virginia, emancipated, that is, if a, if a slaveholder liberated their enslaved people, the laws actually prohibited them from staying in the state. Virginia had a zero-tolerance policy toward freed slaves. Hayward Shepard was liberated. He was freed by his master, who was Fontaine Beckham, the mayor of Harper's Ferry. Um, but the Virginians had a little side game going that that if they had benefactors and they were they would be allowed to stay if they were collaborative, if they were cooperative. And Hayward Shepherd was not the kind of man that would make Nat Turner proud. He was not the kind of man that would make Malcolm X proud, um, if, if I may be so. Uh, you know, Malcolm X called uh, certain black leaders uncles. And I think we could call Hayward Shepherd, with all due respect, Uncle Hayward. Because what Hayward did was he agreed to stay in Virginia. And he worked and collaborated with Fontaine Beckham, his former master, and all the money he made, he paid Fontaine Beckham a portion back, and in turn, Fontaine Beckham placed him in jobs where he made some money. And so he had a position at the railway station, not a lofty, we're not talking about executive or well-paying position, we're talking about a job. And in fact, Fontaine Beckham um, uh, enabled Hayward Shepard to become, in comparison to the other people of color in that state, a man of means. And when um, Oswald Billard in, uh, interviewed one of the guards who had been at Harper's Ferry on the night of the raid, that uh, that Irish guard made a point to say that he, uh, you know, he didn't have the kind of money that Hayward Shepard had. Now that is who Hayward Shepard was by status, who he was as a person, according to um, the first journalist. Uh, whose name was Simpson Donovan, who came from the Baltimore Exchange and who wrote about Hayward Shepard and said that he was nasty, that he was um, determined to, uh, re to expose the raiders, that they argued with him for an hour and warned him not to do anything, and they kept telling him, don't do anything, and if you do, we're going to have to shoot you. And eventually, according to what Donovan says, Hayward Shepard slipped off his shoes and tried to sneak across the bridge to Maryland to warn his white friends, his white neighbors, to let them know what was going on. And at that point, he was shot through the chest, shot through the back and through the chest because he was trying to get away.
So, you know, Haywood Shepherd's death is always even even black scholars bring up the the, the so called irony or the sad the tragedy of this man being the first so called victim of the Harper's Ferry raid. The reality was Haywood Shepherd was on the side of the slaveholders. He was paid for, he was bought, and he was a creature of that establishment. And he wouldn't have been killed had he had he cooperated. But the fact that he was so intent on saving uh, his masters, his former masters, says a lot more about who Hayward Shepard was. And it's no surprise that the daughters of the Confederacy put up a monument to him. They did it for political reasons, obviously. But it's actually a fitting tribute because he was one of theirs. John Brown was much more... Uh, much more um, a person in the black community, beloved of the black community, than Haywood Shepard would have been. So that, that's how I would assess him. Yes, and after John Brown was caught, he made this great speech to the court, which it might be a bit too long for me to read to the audience, so I might put it in the podcast link when I publish this episode. Okay. It's a very great speech, and he argues that he did not intend to commit insurrection. He did it simply out of principle, and that if he were doing this violence on behalf of the poor, or the rich, rather, he would be praised. But since he did it on behalf of slaves, he is now condemned and is sentenced to be executed. Precisely. And when he says, I did not intend to raise an insurrection, he means that. Because what does insurrection entail? It entails the systematic and deliberate intention to, to kill slaveholders. You cannot have an insurrection without wiping out slaveholders. Nat Turner, and, and it's not that I oppose Nat Turner, but I'm simply making the technical difference here. Nat Turner was an insurrectionist. How do we know that? Nat Turner methodically killed slaveholders. And he didn't just kill slaveholders. He even killed their heirs. Because if you look at it, if you kill the heir of a slaveholder, then you have no master. So you can kill your master, but if your master has a son, then you still have another master by law. I'm talking about the laws of the United States. So when Nat Turner led his revolt, they killed him. They even killed a baby in the bassinet. And as cruel and, and, and horrible as it sounds, half of the, about half of the people that died under Nat Turner were children. But I think we have to remember they were the children of slaveholders. Now, I couldn't do that. John Brown could not do that. John Brown wanted to do something that brought force into the struggle, but did not resort to bloodletting. And and uh, what he would what he would say as a Christian would be, you know, I think on on you know inexcusable murder. He wouldn't murder the children of slaveholders. He wouldn't murder slaveholders. Um and. Anytime you find John Brown killing anybody, they're usually shooting at him, and with the exception of Pottawatomie, they were plotting against him. So when he's in Virginia, if anything, he errs on the side of his, his captives. And Osborne Anderson, who was the only raider to live, to escape, and to write extensively about the raid, Osborne Anderson said this. He critiqued John Brown. He said, in effect, if John Brown had shown, at that particular moment, John Brown showed too much attention to the, to the hostages who were crying and weepy and scared, and he, and he should have focused more on the mission at hand. Now, Osborne Anderson didn't change his assessment of Brown, but again, tack, 
tactically speaking, Brown failed because he was so concerned. And this brings out a point I, I will find, at least I'll finish this part and then whatever else you want to pursue. John Brown was a humanitarian by all accounts. This was a man who had a passion for the downcast, but who cared about people. He's never in his biography in studying the whole trajectory of his life, you see a man of cruelty, a man of violence. Um, yeah, he was a bit harsh on his children. Uh, you know, he, he, did, he did beat his children. But unfortunately, that was kind of the 19th century um, style. And Brown himself repented of those ideas. When he became an older man, he, he, re- he regretted the fact that he had used a switch on his, older, on his sons when they were young. And his children who were born later in his life were not treated the same way. Um, so overall, I'd say, you know, it helps to look at the profile of a man. But this idea that he was a violent person and certainly this idea that he was an insurrectionist, um, Brown was telling the truth. And he, he said to these, he said, I see a book kissed here, and I assume it's the, it's the Bible, and if not, it's the New Testament. And that book teaches me that whatever I would wish for myself, I should want for my neighbor, the golden rule of Christ. He said, that's what I was trying to do. You're going to hang me? You're going to hang me for trying to treat human beings with the same dignity that I would want for myself and my own children. That's John Brown. I agree. And there's so much more to discuss about him, but due to time, I think we'll have to stop here for now. Maybe we can continue another interview in the future to discuss even more and I'm definitely looking forward to what you have to write about John Brown I love your work I love the work oh, I love you. the man himself thank you so kindly I appreciate that okay. and uh, I look forward to uh, to uh, listening to your podcast too thank you until next time this thank has you. been the letter of liberty where we have discussed literature liberty history news and potentially all that is under the sun Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.